Thank you all for being with us today. Uh, this morning, we are bringing a three-part series to a close, and this series is called Resurrected. And we began this series on Easter Sunday talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And if you spend enough time in a church setting, or if you've picked up enough details of this story, you know that Jesus rises from the dead. That's why we celebrate Easter. And then eventually he ascends into heaven. But there's a 40-day period where he's here on the earth after that resurrection and before the ascension. And so last week we took a look at one of the events that takes place during that 40-day time period. And this week we're going to take a look at another event that takes place just before Jesus ascends. In fact, we're going to take a look at what Jesus says to his followers, his parting words, his parting instructions just before he ascends into heaven. Do you guys know what ascend means? Rise up. We say ascend because to say he floated up to heaven. Sounds weird, so we came up with that word ascend. And so just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his followers some important instructions. He tells them what they are to be about. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, if you have spent enough time with us over the years as a church, you know that uh, I grew up in a church setting. I am a church kid, went to church as a kid um, because my parents made me. That's how it works when you're a kid. Right, kids? You guys know? That's how it works. And so for those of us who grow up in a church setting, there is a phenomenon that occurs. Um, we are supplied with answers before we ask the questions. Okay? We are supplied with certain answers, big, big answers to big, big questions before we can even articulate the question. For example, when I was three years old in Sunday school class, uh, my Sunday school teacher, who was a very wonderful, sweet woman, uh, she taught me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and if I accept him as my Savior, then I will go to heaven when I die. Well, that's fantastic. But as a three-year-old, I wasn't asking. I wasn't thinking, well, tell me more about this death thing. I didn't understand death. I didn't understand salvation. I had no, given no thought to heaven or hell or any of that kind of stuff. But I was supplied with the answer to this very big question, the question of well, what happens after this life? What happens? I was given the information before I went seeking after it. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's very useful to have like information before you need it, right? It's very, very useful. But there is this thing that can take place among those of us who grew up in a church setting, and I know I'm not the only one. When you grow up being given the answers before you ask the question, there is a period of time, usually in a, in a person's late teens or early 20s, early adulthood, where they start to finally ask some big questions. You know, the first um, job I had in ministry was working with teenagers. And uh, every once in a while, a parent of a teen would approach me and they would be very concerned. And they would say, oh my goodness, my teenager, they're asking questions about their faith. And they're having doubts. And they're wondering, you know, what's the point of all this? And they're asking these questions and those parents would be so concerned. I said, well, this is, this is actually really good. Because at a certain point, you need to ask those questions. If a person goes through and never asks those big questions, then they really, they really don't have a faith of their own. It's just a borrowed faith from their parents, just an inherited faith. And so it's good to ask some of these big questions about church. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, it's important to go back to some of these foundational questions. So I want to give you one question, one foundational question to consider as we move forward this morning. Simple question. Big question. What's the point? Specifically, what's the point of church? Right? What's the point of church? That's a question I wasn't asking as a kid being taken to church. Right? I was three years old. They put me in my little shirt with the short sleeves and the clip-on tie. Here we go. I wasn't asking, what's the point of church? 
And so I'd like for you to consider that question. What, what's, what's the point of church? Somebody put you on the spot right now. Maybe somebody who, who's not a Christian, and they were just genuinely curious. They weren't trying to give you a hard time. If someone approached you right now and said, hey, you're a church-going person, oh, what's the point? What's the point of church? How would you answer? Some of you look nervous. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, right? Don't worry about it. But what, what, what's, what's, what's the point? Now, some of you might think, well, what are you even asking that question for? It's so absolutely obvious. But here's the thing. If you asked 100 different Christians, 100 different church-going Christians that question, you might get 100 different answers. What's the point of church? Fortunately for us, before he ascends into heaven, Jesus answers that question. He tells us the point. He tells us what the point is to church. And so I'm going to tell you that story. I'm going to tell you how Jesus answers that question. But before we get to that story, I need to give you some context. If you remember last week, those of you who were here, we spent a lot of time talking about Peter, and I gave you a whole lot of exposition about um, Simon Peter and where he grew up and what the school system was like. Do you remember any of that, those of you who were here? And there was these different tiers of schooling, and so Simon Peter would have gone to that first tier of schooling, and then he would have gone to the second tier of schooling, that Beth Sefer, and then Beth Midrash, and then he could have uh, applied to study under a rabbi. And we don't know if Simon Peter attempted to study under a rabbi. What we do know is that when we first meet Simon Peter, he is not studying under a rabbi, so he was either rejected or never bothered to apply. And so what we know about the culture at that time is that they had this system in place. And so if a young man, if he had made it through those first two tiers of schooling, does any of this sound familiar to those of you here last week? If a young man made it through those first two tiers of schooling, they would have studied under a rabbi if they were accepted. They would have studied for 15 years they would have been a disciple under the care and tutelage following one rabbi. And after that period of 15 years, when the disciple was 30 years old, about 30 years old, they would eventually graduate to become a rabbi. And so what we see in the life of Jesus is that he does some things according to the customs of his culture. He follows some of the traditions of the rabbis. In fact, we know from Luke's gospel that Jesus is 30 years old when he begins his public ministry, which was the average age of a rabbi beginning their teaching. And we see Jesus calling disciples in somewhat unconventional ways. And so when these first disciples were called, Simon, Peter, and the rest, when they were called, they probably had it in their minds, okay, I've just been invited to follow. I've just been invited to become a disciple. I'm going to be doing this for the next 15 years of my life. That's probably what they had in mind because that's how it worked in that culture. You study under a rabbi, you follow a rabbi for 15 years. And then finally, after those 15 years, finally I'll graduate. No longer a disciple. Now I will become a rabbi after those 15 years. And so as things began, that's probably what was in their minds. It's going to be a 15-year journey, learning how to be a rabbi, and then I'll be a rabbi of my own. But then, then at a certain point in the journey, they discover that their rabbi is more than just a rabbi, and he's more than just a prophet. And he's more than just a man of God. They come to this conclusion. They realize that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And once they realize Jesus is the Messiah, well, hmm, all bets are off. We took a look last week at that moment when the disciples come to that conclusion. It was really led by Simon, Simon Peter. In fact, let me read this for you. I'm in Matthew 16. Again, this is something we discussed a little bit last week. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's put this next verse up on the screen there, verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here Simon is given a new name, the name Peter, which means rock. It's interesting to note that when you see that name Peter appear there, the original Greek was Petros, which is the male form of the word, and it means a piece of rock. And so that's why we can call Peter Rocky or the rock man. He's a piece of rock. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the second time that word rock appears, it's the feminine version of the word. It's Petra, which means a mass of rock. And so here is this man, Simon. He's received this revelation from God that Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a rabbi, but he is the Messiah. Not only is he the Messiah, he's the son of the living God. And in that moment, Jesus gives him the new name. You're the rock man. And on this rock, on the revelation that Jesus is the son of God, on this rock, I will build my, what's the word? Church. I will build my church. This is the first time that Jesus uses this term, church. How many times do you think Jesus talks about church in the Gospels? How many times did you guess? What do you think? Like more than 20? More than 20? Less than 20? Two. Two occasions. I see Corey, who's in seminary, "Mm -mm, less than 20, less than 20. Two times he talks about church. On this occasion, and then again later on in Matthew, Matthew 18, he talks about what to do if a brother sins against you. You take it up with that person. You try to work it out. If they can't work it out, then bring it to the church. Two occasions. What does that word church mean? Again, let's go back to to Greek and see what we're talking about here. It's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. So that word ecclesia is sometimes translated as assembly. Right? Assembly. And so Jesus is talking about his church, his assembly, his group of people. And so that's sometimes the way that we think about church. We're the people of Jesus, an assembly. But a different translation, a related but different translation of that same word, which I think is a better translation, is a calling out. Not just a group of people, but a calling out. A people called to be something. A group of people called to do something. A calling out. So now in this moment with Simon, who is now named Peter, we realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Now it's important to remember, and we've talked about this a whole lot, I know we've talked about it a whole lot recently, but the Messiah, there were certain expectations that people have for the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to free them from Rome, they wanted the Messiah to bring about his new kingdom, to bring back the glory of Israel, like back in the old days with King David and King Solomon, they wanted their Messiah to be that kind of of a king, and of course, that's, that's not the agenda of Jesus. That's not the work that he was put on this world to accomplish. And so they had this expectation for the Messiah. They realized that Jesus is the Messiah. We move forward in the timeline. Jesus is crucified. He is resurrected. He comes back. We talked about last week how they have this encounter. Jesus and Peter have this encounter where they, they make things right. There was a broken relationship, and then it's restored. Now, Luke, one of the gospel writers, one of the guys who writes one of the four biographies of Jesus, he also writes the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke covers a detail that he did not cover in the gospels. 
He talks about something, he writes about something that happened that I think is, is really important to note as we move forward here. I'm in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. And this is, again, this is Luke. It's basically his recap of the Gospels, right? He says, let me tell you, you know, previously in the Gospels, here's where we left off, right? Because the book of Acts is essentially the sequel to the Gospels. Here's what happens next. And so in chapter 1, he's recapping, he's letting you know, here's what happened before all these things. So he says, on one occasion, while he, while Jesus, was with them, he gave them this commandment. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for, for the gift from my hmm, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they asked Jesus a question. And this is one of, in my opinion, one of the saddest moments in all of the Bible. Let's take a look at this verse. Verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still, that's what they wanted. They still were hoping. They're like, okay, Jesus, you died, and when you die, we knew this whole thing of you being the king. We, we, he's like, okay, well, that's all off. But now you're back. So now that you're back, are you going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to establish your perfect kingdom now? And Jesus has to tell them, no. No, he says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. No, guys, that's not happening now. And it will happen in the future, but in the meantime, we enter into the church age. In the meantime, see, Jesus, he's not going to establish his, his perfect kingdom on this earth, not yet, not now. Instead, Jesus launches the church, and that's really what the book of Acts tells us, is how this thing called church begins. Now, we can think about church, and we can talk about church as an assembly, like we said before. We can talk about church as a calling out, a group of people called to be something special, to do something special. One of my favorite ways to think about church is to define church as a movement, the movement of Jesus in this world. We're not just called out to, to kind of hang out together, but we are the movement of Jesus Christ in this world, accomplishing His will in this world. Another way to think about church is to think of church as a vehicle, a vehicle through which the will of God is accomplished in this world, a vehicle through which God's will is exercised and the work of Jesus is accomplished. We are a vehicle. Now, thinking super literally about vehicles and how they function and all this, um, some of you in this room, perhaps a lot of you have been on family road trips. Family road trip, anybody ever go on a family road trip? Isn't that so much fun, right? It's fond memories, right? But when you're in the moment, like, oh, man, there's traffic and all these adventures come up. But, but yeah, we look back on those things finally. Here's how a family road trip works. You sit down. You figure out the destination. You know where you're going. And then you load up everybody in the car and you go, right? Isn't that how it works? It's not as if, well, well let's go pack. We'll get a bunch of stuff. We'll all get in the car. We'll sit in the driveway. And then we figure out, okay, where should we go? That's not how it works. You know the destination, destination before you get in the vehicle, right? I mean, how crazy would that be? Let's all pack. What should we pack? I don't know. Where are we going? I don't know yet. We'll, we'll decide in the car, right? That's not how it works. Now, I know this might seem like a silly kind of comparison, 
But the same kind of principle is true for the church. It's not as if the church existed, right? It's the first century, and Jesus ascended, and now it's time for the church, and the church exists, and, and Peter's there, and he's preaching, and John's with him, and they're leading the church. I'm like, okay, uh, we're a church, so um, what do you think we should do as a church? Any ideas? I mean, what should we, where should we go together? What should our destination be? What are we working towards? Any ideas from the crowd? It's not like they did that, no. The mission, I know this is like, <sighs> I know this is so simple, but I have to say it out loud, right? The mission of the church precedes the creation of the church, right? The only reason the church, the vehicle, the only reason the church exists is to fulfill a mission, right? The mission comes before the church. This, you, you get what I'm saying, right? This makes sense, yes? The mission precedes the movement. Let's put it that way. The reason the movement we call church exists is to fulfill this mission. We were given our destination before the church was even created. And so, we move forward here. We arrive at this moment. We're going to look at, it's in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 28. Actually, why don't we go ahead and throw these couple of verses up on the screen here. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This passage is often referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus is saying, okay, just before I go, if there's any kind of doubt, or if you're curious at all about what you're supposed to do once I'm gone, I talked a lot about it before the whole resurrection thing. I talked about it before the crucifixion thing. Let me just clarify before I send to heaven what you're supposed to do. You're going to go and you're going to make disciples. Not disciples of your own, but you're going to make disciples of Jesus. That's how this works. In other words, guys, you're on this program. I've been your rabbi. You've been following me, but you guys are never going to graduate to rabbi. You are going to remain disciples that make disciples. Disciples, not of yourselves. John, don't you go think you're making disciples of John. Peter, don't make disciples of Peter. No, you're making disciples of Jesus. And so, what's the point of church? Start simple. Make disciples, right? There you go. What's all the fuss about? Why are you even asking the question? It's so simple. We make disciples, right? I don't know. What do you want to do now? Close in prayer, right? It's, just, it's that easy. Make disciples. Go do it. So let's go do it, right? Uh, what does it mean <laughs> to make disciples? How do we define making disciples? What does it look like to make disciples? I'm going to give you two examples here, two different ways of defining what it looks like to make a disciple. Some people understand the work of making disciples as making converts. Making a convert, right? That's a term that I'm really not comfortable with. But you know what I mean when I say that? Someone who's not a Christian, let's get them converted, right? Let's get that person converted to Christianity. That's what it means to make disciples. Let's go and make some converts, yes? And you approach somebody and you lay out the gospel, which is so important for us to do. And we explain what Jesus has done for us, and we explain the love of God that he has had for us, and we explain the sacrifice of Jesus, and how Jesus rises from the dead, and how everyone who puts their trust in Jesus receives salvation. You get that person to accept Jesus as Savior, you give them a high five, and you walk out the door. You just made another convert. Woo! Hot dog. How about that? 
Is making a convert the same as making a disciple? Not it. I mean, Jesus would have told us, here's the point. Go and make converts. Go and make converts. Go and just get a bunch of people saved. See, Jesus didn't tell us to do that. You know why? Because if Jesus had given his first century followers, his first generation of followers, that instructions, the Christianity, the message of Jesus, the gospel would not have made it to the second generation. Right? Because they would have received salvation. It's like, okay, I've received salvation in Jesus Christ. Now what? I don't know. We're all done. You're a convert. That's all I had to do. See ya. No. Making converts is not the same as making disciples. But that's, that's the way that some people think about discipleship, about this command that Jesus has given us. I'll tell you right now, that's not it. It's not enough. Other people, other churches, other Christians, other people define discipleship in a different way. They say discipleship is teaching people the Bible. That's discipleship. Once upon a time, I worked for a church, and we had an org chart, different kind of categories of ministry. You know, you had service, you had uh, worship, you had all these different things. And then there was the discipleship category. And under discipleship was all the different Sunday school classes that were offered. Because they understood discipleship as teaching people the Bible. We got to make disciples. That means we need to teach people the Bible. We got to teach them what Jesus said. We got to give them the context of the Old Testament so they understand the New Testament. We need to teach people the Bible. That's what disciple-making is all about, right? Teaching people the Bible? Why didn't Jesus say that then? I need you to go into the world, go into this world, and teach people the Bible. Let me tell you something, all right? I have spent a lot of time and a lot of money studying the Bible, all right? I went to a Bible college. I spent money I didn't have. I borrowed it from Sally Mae, paid it all back, right? Then I went to seminary. I've spent a lot of money to study this book, right? But there's something more. Jesus doesn't say, go and teach people the Bible. He says, go and make disciples. To create a convert is incomplete. To teach someone the Bible is incomplete. It's not the whole story. You need to do all of the above in order to make a disciple. That's how this works. We've been commanded to go into this world and make disciples, not just make converts, not just teach people the Bible. We need to do both because disciple-making should have a multiplication type of an effect because disciples who are trained in the Bible, who know Jesus as their Savior, oh yeah, they've been converted, if you want to put it that way. Let's stop using that term. Let's say saved. I'm, I'm more comfortable with that who've received the gospel and then understand the teachings of Jesus and understand the teachings of Scripture, then they can make more disciples. That's how this works. I don't know if you noticed, but the title of today's sermon is Missio Dei, which is Latin. It's just fun to play with the Latin every once in a while, right? I know we don't do that normally as a church. Missio Dei, which simply means mission of God. And in this moment, before he ascends, Jesus gives his disciples the missio dei, the mission of God, what they are to do in this world, what they are to accomplish in this world. And that mission of God, that missio dei, has been passed on from generation to generation to us. And now we have been invited to participate in the missio dei, in the mission of God, and making disciples. What is the point of church? 
What is the point? To make disciples. What is the point of church? What is the point? To engage in the mission of God. So, let me ask you. Let me talk to the, the Christians in the room. Let me ask you a question. Are you engaging in the mission of God? Or are you just going to church? Are you engaging in the Missio Dei? Or are you just going to church? Because there's a difference. There's a big difference. Are you engaging in the mission of God? Or are you just going to church? Let me ask you. Think about it. Are you actively participating in your own discipleship? Are you actively participating in your own disciple becoming? I heard these words years ago from a missiologist named Dwight Smith, and I loved it. He said, a disciple is what a disciple does. The being of a disciple is in the doing of what a disciple does, and a disciple engages in disciplines. It's the same root word. Are you actively participating in your own discipleship, in your own disciple becoming? To some extent, yes, you are, because you're engaging in one of those disciplines right now. Worship. Are you worshiping God? That's a discipline. That's part of what a disciple does in their own disciple making, in their own disciple becoming, in their own participating in their discipleship, engaging in worship. Now, a while ago, I don't know if this was, was 30 years ago or more, but we started to hear these certain phrases come out of Christian culture, like, well, Christianity, it's more than just Sunday morning. And you're absolutely right. That's absolutely true. Christianity is more than just what happens on a Sunday morning. The Sunday morning event, the church service, the worship service, it isn't everything, but it is something. And it is something important. So let's hold on to that mentality that it isn't everything, but let's remain faithful to the fact that it is an important something. This, uh, uh, this is our opportunity to worship God, the God who loves us, the God who saves us. I mean, this is important to do, important to engage in this time of worship. And so are you actively participating in your own discipleship? Are you making worship a priority? Are you reading the Bible? Are you reading the words of Jesus? Are you reading the Old Testament and the New? Do you have a regular plan of Bible reading? Because that's something that a disciple does. They want to be more informed. They want to know God. It's not just about information. It's about understanding who God is and building a relationship with Him. Are you going to worship? Are you attending in worship? Are you participating in that? Are you participating in a Bible reading? Because that's what a disciple does. Are you praying? Oh. Do you have a regular prayer life? Are you building in that fellowship, that communication with God? These are all things that we do to actively participate in our own discipleship. Are you in a small group? You know, this, like I said, this isn't everything what we're doing right now, the, the Sunday morning event, but it is something. But I'm looking at a bunch of people who aren't talking back at me. That's how this works. If you start talking back at me, it'll be weird and impolite, right? I'm looking at people sitting in rows, facing forward, politely nodding. Great, fantastic. In a small group, you sit around in a circle. You ask questions. You share with one another. Are you in a small group? Hey, there's one tonight that's open and available. Show up at Corey's group right next door at Hope House. Are you in a small group? Are you praying? Are you reading the Bible? Are you serving other people? 
taking care of the people in your life who are in need. You know why I do sermons like this? It's not to make everybody feel guilty. That's not it. That's not it. The point of today is that I want to walk away feeling bad about all the stuff I'm not doing that I know I should be doing. No, 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 no. This is encouragement. We can all be taking that next step. Don't, don't waste your time feeling bad about it. Just start doing it. Actively participating in your own discipleship. Are you, are you actively participating in the discipleship, the disciple making of somebody else? Are you doing that? Are you praying for the lost people in your life to help, yes, make them converts? Yes, to help them find salvation in Jesus? Absolutely. Are you, are you helping other people find Jesus? Are you introducing the people in your life who don't yet know Jesus? Are you introducing Jesus to them? Are you inviting them to worship? Are you inviting them to serve alongside you? Are you meeting their needs? Are you serving them? Are you praying for them? Those of you in this room who have the gift of teaching, and you, you, a lot of you do have that gift, are you teaching a Bible study or a small group? Those of you who have the gift of preaching, are you preaching in your church? Now, we love to have other people, not just my voice up, but we love, if people are gifted to do that, we want to hear what God has to tell us through you. Are you preaching? Are you teaching? Are you using your gifts to help others find Jesus, to show others the, the value of living within the boundaries of Jesus? And so, again, I come back to that root question, are you engaging in the Missio Dei, or are you just going to church? Which one is it? You know, <clears throat> I am very encouraged by the fact that when I ask questions like this, I can look out at a group of people, and for so many faces out there, for so many of you, you would tell me, yes, pastor, yes, Josh, I am engaging in the mission of God, because so many of you are doing these things. You're active, you're praying, I know you are. You're reading your Bible because we've talked about it. You're in small groups. You're serving. You're doing it. And it's so encouraging to be able to look out and not just, you know, kind of give people a hard time, but to know that so many of you are doing just that. You are participating in your own discipleship, and you are participating in the disciple-making of new people. So keep doing what you're doing. Take that next step forward in engaging in the mission of God, because I'll tell you what, I am not content just to show up and go to church, Right? That's not what my Christianity is about. That's not what my faith is about. I'm just going to go to church, listen to Brett play some songs, see what kind of outfit Jamie puts together, right? I mean, that's all well and good, but I want, I want more than that. Don't you? Don't you? The point, okay. the point of church is not going to church. <laughs> the point of church is to make disciples. We've been around as a church for 10 years. Next month, we'll celebrate our 10th anniversary. We're around for 10 years. And I believe something about a church, whether a church is 10 years old or 20 years old or 200 years old. When a church ceases to engage in the Missio Dei, then that group of people ceases to be a church. When we forget about what we're supposed to be doing, when we forget the point, when we fail to make disciples, when we fail to engage in the mission of God, we're no longer a church. We're just a, a group of people sitting around. And so we have to. You know, moving forward on our timeline, moving forward into year 11 and beyond, we must stay engaged in the mission of God. We must 
remember our purpose and our point. We must continue to obey the instructions that our Lord has given us. We must continue to make disciples. Let me pray for you. Jesus, encourage us. I pray that you would encourage us in this moment to take that next step forward in our disciple becoming. Show us what we need to do. Show us what we need to change. Give us that courage to take the next step forward. And I don't know what it is, God. Maybe it's, maybe it's reading the Bible. Maybe it's we need to spend more time praying. Maybe it's we need to spend more time serving. Whatever it is, God, show us where we need to take that next step forward. And Father God, we pray that you would please, in this moment right now, bring into our hearts, bring into our minds all of our loved ones who don't yet know you, Jesus, as their Savior. And show us what we can do to help make that person a disciple. Not just a convert, not just teach that person the Bible, but to help make that person a disciple. Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that, that we are weak, but you are strong, and there are things that we just can't do. No amount of persistence, no amount of cleverness will, will ever be enough to change somebody's heart. But that's your work, God. So we pray, God, that you would change the hearts that need to be changed. Help us all in our discipleship. Help us to become disciples and help us to make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.